Turn your Bibles to James, if you would. If you're in your Bibles, in the black Bibles in front of you, uh, if you don't have one, feel free to grab that Bible in front of you and take it if you do not have a copy of God's Word for yourself. Uh, as a reminder to you, we always um, have those available to you to remind you that we are uh, all about God's Word here, and we share from God's Word, and it's not our ideas, and so you can check it, and we hope that you do as we study it. All that we are here at Grace is uh, about the Word of God, and it's important in our lives for many reasons. And so we're going to look at it this morning, James chapter 4, and it's page 952 if you are in those black Bibles as well. Before we read it, though, this morning, we're going to be talking about arrogance. Arrogance. Let me define arrogance for you this morning. Arrogance is having or feeling an exaggerated view of yourself and your own abilities, Maybe an exaggerated view of how important you are. That's arrogance. And you know what arrogance is. We see arrogance all the time. Um, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about that this morning. What James is getting at in this particular chapter is really pride. And it's kind of what he's been talking about in the beginning of chapter 4, as Jeff shared in the past number of weeks, and into the end of chapter 4 here. James has been revealing pride. And we know that because one of the things that he says is, draw near to God. But he also says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And God is opposed to the proud. And so we know that, that James has been talking a little bit about it. And you remember that from last week as Jeff was sharing. James is really criticizing those people in the church that he was speaking to who leave God and who leave his values out of their lives who leave God and His values out of their lives. And it's really an extension of the worldliness discussion that we've been having that James breached in chapter 1 when he talks about true religion. You remember him, what he said about that, which is keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And this passage really is one of the greatest ones in all the Bible containing God's sovereignty and our frailty and the pride of man. The providence of God and the pride of man. And so James comes at his audience to remind them of pride through frailty and dependence on him, through humility, as we've learned in the beginning of it. There's an old story of a Scottish woman who went from home to home across the countryside, and she would sell her different threads and buttons and her shoestrings, and when she came to an unmarked trail, a cross trail, across in the road, she would toss a stick up in the air, kind of like what we do at golf to decide who gets to go first, right? Right? And we, we cast lots, similar to that. She was tossing it up in the air to decide which direction she was going to go when it landed a certain way. And one day, she was seen tossing up the stick multiple times, tossing it up and down multiple times. Why do you think she was doing that? Pretty obvious, right? Why would you toss it up more than once? Somebody asked her, why do you toss the stick up more than once? And she said, because it keeps pointing to the left, and I want to go to the right and take the road the other way. So she kept throwing the stick up in the air until she got the direction that she was able to go according to the stick and according to the way that it pointed. And we, that's a funny kind of illustration, but it's a reality and something that we, I think, can do quite often. It's not as if somehow 
she's controlling her own destiny, right? As if she just keeps flipping that stick until it goes where she wants, as if God's not in control of that, right? She's just flipping it until it gets to go where she wants to go. But God is still in control of every time that she threw that stick in the air. So let's read James 4 with that in mind as we walk through our passage this morning. James chapter 4. He says this, Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such a, in such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Arrogance, we saw that in verse 16, that you boast in your arrogance. So the first thing we see in verse 13 and 14 is the foolishness of arrogance this morning. If arrogance is having an exaggerated sense of your abilities, then of course that's foolish, according to James this morning. See, the Bible continually reminds us story after story of the complete power, the complete sovereignty that God has over all of creation, over your ability to rival God. And so for you and me, according to James, to play God is foolish. For us to think that we're in complete control of our lives is foolish. And the problem is that some of us know we're not in control. You know that. I know that but we act as if we are. We read the verses that speak of God's complete sovereignty over all of his creation. We acknowledge that, but then we act as if we are in control of our lives. And James says to that person, you're arrogant. You have a conflated view, an inflated view of who you think you are and what you can do. And so the foolishness of arrogance, first thing in verse 13, read, just follow there with me. There's five things in that first verse, just really quick. Arrogance presumes upon much in verse 13. Look at that verse. Come now, you who say. So there's two ways to to talk, according to James here. You who say, he's going to follow it up in verse 15. You ought to say this, but this is what you say. You say, today or tomorrow, we will go. First presumption, that you have control over your movements and where you go. That you're in complete control of where you go. What does he say? Today, tomorrow, your time. You think you're in charge of that. Then they says, you will go. You presume to be in charge of your destination, that you're going to go, that you're going to be able to go somewhere into such and such a town. Presuming upon the duration. And what else? You presume to be in control of the duration of how long you're going to stay. What does he say? You say you're going to spend a year there in this place that you think you're going to go. So there's a presumption upon how long you're going to be there doing your thing. And then you presume upon what you're going to do when you get there. You're going to trade. Okay? And then you presume upon what's going to happen when you get there for this long and start trading. You presume that you're going to make a profit on the results, on what's going to happen while you're there doing that thing. Success to the arrogant person is the measure of how things are going, 
how often you get what you want is the measurement for if you're having success. And how often is that the case for you and me? Somebody asks how things are going, and it's going good if it's going the way that you want it to go, right? But if it's not going the way you want it to go, uh, things could be a little differently, right? I wish they were a little bit different. And there's nothing wrong with things going the way that we want to, and there's nothing wrong with planning as we're going to get into this. If you read this, this may seem like just a casual, oh, we were just planning on going here and there, spend a bit of time there, you know, maybe do this, maybe do that, see what happens. But James seems to be getting at this arrogance that you presume upon all of those things that are happening when you don't know that. There's nothing wrong with things going the way that we want them to, but success is measured by our obedience and submission to God's word, not on the success of our individual plans. It's measured on obedience and submission. And so the first thing that the arrogant person does is he presumes upon much. The second thing is the person ignores God's will in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Some of us forget this. We forget that we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You're forgetting something, James says. Remember, your speech always reveals your heart. We've talked about this a number of times in James. And what are these people saying? They're saying, come now, we're going to go do this and that and make a profit and do all this. And it reveals to those that we talk to that we don't see the sovereignty of God and God's will and God's plan for our lives. And so Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You don't actually know what tomorrow is going to bring. And you're forgetting one thing, guys, that God is in control, that he's sovereign over your life. And so in effect, you're ignoring God's will. You're ignoring his sovereignty. And incredible verses that you come across, and it's maybe pretty casual as you read it, but Matthew 10 says this. Going along with the verses that we read at the beginning of our service of God's sovereignty, Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus says, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. What does he say in the beginning of those verses in verse 29? Not one of those sparrows falls apart from the Father. Not even a bird dies apart from the will of the Father. We had two crows that I've seen this past week dead on the grass, and I'm like, this is great, because they're you know, eating our stuff in our garden. But not even those crows that died, died apart from the sovereign plan and will of God. Everything in all of creation is under God's control. That's an incredible verse. All of creation. Everything happens according to God's good wisdom. So when you presume upon all these things that you're going to do this or that, you ignore your sovereign, loving, holy Father. And James is aiming his rebuke at those Christians, these Christian merchants more than likely because they're going and trading, and these others in the congregation that are focused on materialism, getting stuff. See, we have this, they arrogantly map out what their plans are, and they have no reference to God's will. Have you ever done that before? Made a plan without any reference to God's will? I have. I didn't hardly wanted to preach this passage because I was like, oh, man, I do that. But 
What they're doing is saying, please bless this. I've made these plans. Please bless these as I go. Help me to honor you as I go. Let's put it in spiritual terms, right? We do this. In North America, we've grown up assuming that profit and God's wills are one and the same, right? Just like they were. They just assumed that it's God's will for me to be wealthy and to have the things that I want to have. And that may not be the case. We have to wrestle with that. That may be not what is not what God wants for your life. Sometimes we say, and I know this was floating around when I first decided to go into ministry and do school, but you hear this, maybe make sure that you get a profession where you're going to make a good living, right? We say that to our kids, you know, you're going to be a lawyer because that's going to make you lots of money. You're going to be an accountant. And those things aren't bad. We need Christian lawyers and accountants. I'm not saying those things are bad. But maybe we think that they should do that because having a good and earning a good living and, and having wealth is really what's most important in life, right? Don't go into Christian ministry. Don't be a missionary. Don't be a pastor. Those things don't pay well, right? We have, we've had that attitude. We've heard of that attitude. And so the question is for us, how relevant is God in the plans that you make? How much do you consult God in the plans that you make? Or do you ignore God's will? Do you acknowledge it? Then third thing we see is that they are blind in verse 14b, blind to the frailty and the brevity of life. What does he say? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The arrogant person does not take into account God's sovereignty. He's blind. You fail to see the temporary nature of the world in which you live in. And it's great and easy for us to acknowledge this and say, oh yeah, life is short. And we do that, right? When somebody has a health condition or when a, a younger person dies, we say life is short and all this stuff. But then we forget that when, we, when you know, time has passed, we forget how short life really is. We need that reminder constantly of how short life is and how brief it is and how frail it is and how little control we have over anything in our lives. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. I hope you've seen that this morning as we've read these verses, and I hope you're reminded of that as we walk through this rest of this passage. It's a good thing not for us to not be in control of everything in our lives. There were a thousand different ways that your week could have gone this past week. And it could have played out so much differently, and you maybe wouldn't have ended up here this morning to worship. And yet you are here this morning because of the sovereign plan of God and because of His grace in your life, you made it here this morning and you're here to worship Him. And you could thank you for Him for that and praise Him for that because you don't deserve to be here and I don't deserve to be here. What does He say? Your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Mist, vapor, smoke. You guys can kind of get the word picture, right? Anybody like to drink coffee in the morning? First thing they do, that's one of the first things I do. You drink a cup of coffee. When you make that cup of coffee fresh out of the pot, what does it do? Steams, right? And you can see that steam, but how long is that steam there? Like maybe like three inches and then it's gone, right? That steam that comes out and then it's gone. A vapor, a mist. 
The summer, early in the morning, I've gone up for a few bike rides, and one of the things I do is the trail around uh, the uh, airport into the hospital and kind of back, and at the airport, there's a low spot in the trail, and as I was biking one morning, I noticed a heavy fog, and it's not fun to go through those because you get kind of wet, but by the time I got through my loot, through that fog, and back all the way through about 20 minutes later, that fog was gone. 20 minutes. So take that 20 minutes of fog, and take that and put that on the grand scale of eternity. How long is that? Nothing, right? Barely anything. Your and my life is that short. It's that brief. And so the question is, what am I doing with that? What are you doing with that? If that's how brief our time is here. Are you following God's will or are you doing your own thing? And when you compare your life to eternity, there's really not a lot of time for you to be doing your own thing. There's not a lot of time for you to be your own God. So he reminds them of the frailty and the brevity of their life. Not only does ignorance, arrogance rather, ignore God's will, but it also rejects it. And we see that in verse 16. We're going to skip over 15 and come back to it. The first wrong response to God's will is to ignore it and to pursue, pres, be presumptuous about it, rather, living as though God and His will do not exist. That's practical atheism, rejecting God, living as if it doesn't exist. But then there's also those who acknowledge that God exists and is sovereign over all things, yet they choose to reject it. And that's self-theism, making yourself God. Yes, I recognize there's a God, but I'm the God not the God of Scripture. This type of person refuses to submit the uncertainties of life to God. They set their goals, they have their desires, they have their will, and they do that above God's. God's will is not as important to them as their plans. And this is a sign of worldliness, which James flat out rejects and he rebukes. And that's where we're at in James 4, rejecting and rebuking worldliness. Because it's not true religion. It's not recognizing God for who He is. And so, arrogance rejects the will of God. What does it cause us to do? Two things. It causes us first to be worldly in 16a. You boast in your arrogance. To boast is to put confidence in something. Right? We all boast in many things. Some of us in our abilities to play sports and to do other kinds of things. We do that and sometimes we do that just for fun. We put confidence in our abilities all the time. You tout your own accomplishments and the things that you're able to do. And James says that true religion is keeping yourself unstained from the world. Arrogance is the way of the world. Boasting in yourself is the way of the world. Presuming upon your ability to control things is the way of the world. Presuming upon your future is the way of the world. There's a healthy and there's an unhealthy boasting for us as Christians, as believers. And the Christian, he ought not to boast in themselves. They ought to boast in the death of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, right? You, we know who Paul was, the accomplishments that he had. He says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the Christian ought to boast in Jesus Christ. He ought to boast in their weakness, in your weakness, because when you do that, God's strength shines and is revealed. Second Corinthians, Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about the thorn in the flesh, that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in his weakness because in his weakness, God is revealed, God's glory, God's greatness, his strength is revealed. So as a Christian, we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Jesus. We boast in God. The worldly person boasts in themselves. And then in verse 16b, it causes us to be like Satan. What does he say about this arrogant boasting? It is evil. Evil one is a title for Satan. It was Satan's pride and it was Satan's arrogance wanting to be like God that led to his fall. And so when we boast in our arrogance, we're emulating that original sin, that original pride that Satan had, that original arrogance. It's evil for us to try to be God and try to play God in our lives. How foolish it is to ignore and reject the will of God. It's like if you were to go into a jungle and I were to put you there and I weren't to give you a map. Go. Or maybe you, it's like trying to sail on the ocean without a compass. Good luck, right? Stay close to your guide. Don't ignore and reject the will of God. The third thing we see in verse 17 is the sin of arrogance. Verse 17 says, For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the person who acknowledges God, affirms His sovereignty, but proceeds to disobey. Do you know anybody in the Bible who did that? Jonah's a good example, right? If you know the story of Jonah, I want to get you to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. I just want to read you in Daniel what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he, in his arrogance, said something to to the Lord and boasted it himself, see what happened. And maybe you know this, but Daniel chapter 4, we're going to come to this later on in the year when we study Daniel. Jonah and Daniel are both perfect examples, right? Jonah was asked by God to go and to the Ninevites and to uh, prophesy to them. And what did he do? He went in the exact opposite direction, right? Over here, I'm going to turn around and go this way. Gets on a boat, and then he causes problems for all these fishermen that are taking him. And what do they do? They eventually throw him overboard, and, and God disciplines him, and He's in a fish for three days, and then the fish spits him back out, and, and eventually Jonah gets it, sort of, and he goes to Nineveh and preaches. He's still not really happy about it, right? But he, take, he takes that chastening from God to actually go and do God's will. In Daniel chapter 4, something a little bit similar happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read it in verse 28 to... 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, this is what they said. This is what James is getting at. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You see all that arrogance and pride in that? Like, look at this city that I built for me for my glory. And while the words were still in, his, in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an oxen, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives to him to whom he will." 
Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven away from among men and ate grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Look what God did to Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance. And what was it that Nebuchadnezzar was to know? That God the Most High rules over the kingdom. That God rules over all of his people. Do we forget that sometimes? Jeff said it well last, last week, if you were following along with us in James. When we resist God, we not only have the flesh, the devil, and the world as our enemies, but what else? There's the fourth thing that's added to that. We also make an enemy out of God, right? Because what does the Bible say? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It'd be like somebody who denies the laws of gravity, right? Standing on the edge of a building and you say, I'm going to jump, I can deny, and you're like, go for it because I know what's going to happen, right? You lose the battle every time against gravity. It's the same with God's will because God's in control. And we know what God's will is because he's revealed it to us. He hasn't just made it some mystery that we need to try to figure out. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we're to abstain from sexual morality. 1 Thessalonians 5 says to pray without ceasing. There's more verses that speak of God's will. God's will is that we obey his word as he's revealed it to us. And what do we do? We ignore it or we choose to ignore it or we fail to obey it. And what does verse 17 say? That's sin. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. And so according to James in this context, sin is leaving God out of your plans. That's sin. Leaving God out of your plans. And so what is our response? Let's go back to verse 15 and read that verse and see what our response then to arrogance is this morning. There's two, as we said, there's two sayings. What he says is, you're saying this, come now. And he's going to come back to this in warning the rich as well. Come now, you rich. But you say this, tomorrow we're going to go and do this and such and such. And here's what you ought to say in verse 15. If the Lord wills, we live and do this or that. That's what you ought to say. And it's not like you just say these magical words and then all of a sudden you're inside of God's will. This is a hard attitude that James is getting at, right? I know some of us, we say Lord willing or we put that at the end of emails or we say it often and that's great if it's coming from your heart, right? We're not, I hope you don't just go from here and start saying Lord willing at the end of everything and think that that's good because that's not good. That's not enough. Uh, your, your heart has to match those words as we, as we know the scripture says that about our hearts. And so the response of arrogance or two arrogance. Jeff has said multiple times in his sermons through James here that if what you get is that you need to try and go out and do harder and try to submit yourself more to God's will and try to say Lord willing more often, that that's not good enough and that's not, and you're not understanding what, how to apply rather the book of James. Because that's not the message of the gospel, right? The message of the gospel is that you can't do good enough that you won't do good enough no matter how hard you try to do good enough, and that you need Jesus Christ, right? That you need his death and resurrection on the cross. You need his Holy Spirit living inside of you to actually do those things, right? So you can do that and in your own strength, but what you're doing really is being an arrogant person that James is specifically saying, you know, you have no control over these things. You need the Holy Spirit. 
If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So the first thing we do is humble ourselves before God. If you're in need of these things this morning, which if you're like me, you are in need of these things, then you need to go to God and you need to confess to God. You need to confess your inability. Confess that you've been trying to do life without factoring in God's will in your life. Confess the things that you've presumed upon, that you were going to be here or go there or do this or do that without consideration for God and for His will and for His plan. Verse 15 is all about God's complete sovereignty. God is sovereign. You and I, we're frail. We're ignorant. We're dependent totally on God. What is your life? God is in control of it. He decides whether or not you live, according to verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live. What's the opposite of that? If the Lord wills, we will die. If the Lord wills, we'll do this. If the Lord wills, we will do that. So whether you make it to your destination for lunch after the service is up to God. It's not up to you. Whether or not you take that next breath is up to God, not up to you. God is our creator. God is our sustainer. He decides, and he's got complete control over all the affairs of his creation. And that's my prayer this morning, that that would sink deep into our hearts and the patterns of our hearts, that God is sovereign. He's in complete control of those things, that we don't just say it, but that we actually believe it and live it. So we can say with the psalmist in, verse, in Psalm verse 90, uh, chapter 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom knows that life is frail and life is short. May we humble ourselves before God. But then also may we submit to God's will. Right? James is not banishing all forms of planning because that would be uh, counterproductive to what the Bible says about planning, right? Which encourages us not to be sloth. And not to take advantage of other people and be lazy and sit around and do nothing. So he's not banning planning. That's not what James is saying. What he's rebuking is this self-sufficient, right? I don't need God. I can do this, which means like I can breathe or I can get here. I can get to lunch without God. I don't need him for that, right? That self-sufficient, self-important way of living that says I don't need God. You and I both know what James means because we've done it, right? God on Sunday, me Monday through Friday, God on Sunday, and just keep going back through the cycle. Or maybe you've made plans and then you've turned to God and said, God, would you bless these plans that I've made? Maybe you've done that before. Maybe you don't do it like that arrogantly though, right? Like you make the plans and you just ask God to help you to, you know, to honor him and, and to bless that, but you didn't... Con- consult God in the first place, right? Did you talk to God before you took that job? Did you talk to God before you made that move with your family? Did you talk to God before you bought that child or bought that child? Nobody buys child. Whoa, (laughs) easy. Bought that car. (laughs) Correction. Did you talk to God before you started planning to have that next child? There we go. What's this guy saying? Did you talk to God before you took those extracurriculars that leave you no margin for time? Did you talk to God? Or did you make the decision and then ask God to bless it and hopefully he gets glorified along the way? You see what I mean? 
Go ahead, make plans, but remember God in those plans. Remember your life, remember what it is. I was listening to a podcast this week and I came across an interesting statistic. A question for you this morning then, in light of that. What is the average number of minutes that a Christian, an evangelical Christian, spends in meaningful prayer with God? Okay? What do you think? Not prayer, not, you know, we know the command to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. So we're not talking about praying without ceasing because we know you guys are all sanctified and you're all, all praying even as I'm up here probably saying hopefully it gets done soon so we can get to lunch. But not that kind of praying. And also not the kind of praying in the van when you're driving to the kids to school or you're coming to church and you're like, Lord, please help me not strangle these kids for not listening today, right? Like that doesn't count either, right? Nobody does that. Nobody, nobody does that. But actual intentional prayer. How many of you think it's 60 minutes? Anybody? Anybody think it's 30 minutes? I'll give you four options you can pick. 15 minutes. Anybody? All right, two minutes. Anybody think it's two minutes? Of all those options, is that what you go with? Two? Two? You're right, it's two. So there's two things you see there. You know this. You know the answer to that. So I'm not telling you anything new. And God sees that. And I was convicted. When I heard that, I was like, Ugh. but I had to share it because that's the reality of Christians, of evangelical Christians who say that God is in control. How can you do, how can I do, this is not just you, this is me. How can I do the will of God when I spend, you know, some days, no time, some days, two minutes in prayer, in meaningful prayer to God? How can I possibly listen in two minutes and hear God's will and listen to God and have him direct me? That's not that doesn't work. doesn't add up. So how can you fall and submit God when that's the amount of time you spend with Him? And that's how we know God. That's how we speak to God. That's how we commune with Him, by talking to Him, by praying. Submission to God's will is our response to arrogance. And the Bible teaches that there are two ways of understanding God's will. The first one is God's will of decree, which is His sovereignty. These things will always come to pass. You can hang around afterwards for the Q&A if you want to discuss these things and have more questions about them. But there's two ways to understand God's will. First, His will of decree. Always comes to pass. Matthew 26, we're reminded of this. Jesus in the garden. And going a little further, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right? He's asking God, that this would be different, but he's saying, God, I know that you have a plan, and I know you have a will, and I'm going to submit to that. That will came to pass, albeit through murder. Or, some, or Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So there's God's will of decree, and then there's God's will of command. And many of these are the commands that we've broken, right? We've read two in First Thessalonians, you know, to be free of sexual morality, to pray without ceasing, all of the commands of God. Those are His will of command, that He desires His creation obey Him. And we submit to God's will by pursuing in obedience the things that He's revealed. But we also submit to God and to His will with all the plans of our lives because He's in control and He's sovereign. Because His ways are above ours and His wisdom is greater than ours. And then finally, dependence on God. If the Lord wills, you will live 
and do this or that. We're totally dependent on God. He knows the number of our days. He determines what we'll do according to His goodness and wisdom. He'll, he will determine the things that we experience. So life is short. Life is frail. It's brief. Stick to your guide. But depend on God for everything. Stop trying to do things in your own strength. Go to Him. It reminds me of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. How do you view the will of God? Is God's will to you bitter medicine or is it gracious love? Because God's will is an expression of His love for us. What's an area of your life where you've focused on your will? Ask God for His will to be done. And coming back to our illustration at the beginning, what might change in your heart, in my heart, and in our lives if we truly let God lead us? Let's pray this morning. Father God, we thank You for this time together this morning. We thank You for Your great love for us as expressed in the gospel through Jesus Christ, God. And we thank you so much as you've been reminded of your sovereignty, God, over all things. God, it is easy for us to say that. It's so easy for us to acknowledge your sovereignty, to read the verses that speak of it. They're all over Scripture, God. You, you show us. You show us even in the laws of nature, God, how you are in control of all things. And yet, God, we so often arrogantly think that we can plan our lives without considering you and we think those things are going to come to pass God and sometimes they do plans that we make go according to the way that we wanted them to and we don't consult you God and we ask that you would convict us of those times we ask God that you would forgive us for those times where we haven't consulted you God it just shows your grace it shows your grace on us that even though we sin and are presumptuous in our lives about so many things that you are good to us and that you love us, God. And so we ask as you come alongside of us in, in reading and looking at James 4 this morning, help us to see where we've been presumptuous in our lives. Where we need to, we need to confess that, we need to re uh, reveal that, God. We ask that you would help us, God, to remember these things, to be reminded of your complete sovereignty, God, and help that to change our hearts, to change the attitude of our hearts, to change the things that we say, the way that we talk about the things that we do. God, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that your wisdom is greater than ours, and we thank you, God, for those of us who are in Christ, that you are working all of those things according to your good purpose to make us more like Jesus Christ, God, because sometimes we look at your will and we really struggle. We struggle to say, how this is part of your plan. And God, the reason that we can trust you is because of those verses in Romans 8, that you're using all these things for our good, to make us more like you. So God, thank you. Use those things in our lives. Submit us to you. Help us to be dependent on you, God, and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.